following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So before Mark left, he um, was doing a series of talks on the paramis, or the ten perfections of the heart, and um, so I'm going to continue on that um, topic this evening. The first of the paramis is uh, generosity, and I'm going to finish up talking about um, the practice of generosity tonight, and then start uh, talking a little bit about the second parami, which is um, sila or morality. And the paramis are um, just qualities that we attempt to explore and to investigate and to practice that um, lead us to understand um, how not to cling, how not to um, act from a self-centered point of view. So we've talked about the, Mark talked about the natural generosity of the heart, just the idea that um, things are that there's just the, the natural tendency of the heart to uh, to be generous. And in nature, we, we see this sort of generosity of what we are um, receiving um, all the time. And as part of nature, we also have this impulse to, to give. So there's just this flow of, of giving and receiving um, that can occur. It's part of nature. Um, Mark also talked about um, understanding our um, intention to be generous and the um, the reason that stinginess tends to stand out so strongly is that there is this um, this deep aspiration for us to, to be generous. We know that uh, when we're generous that we know how the heart feels and we know how the heart feels when we move towards stinginess. So there's just this natural tendency to want to uh, develop that uh, generosity, that natural generosity. I was reading an article in the New York Times this week and I came across a quote that I liked quite a bit, and it said, um, don't become cynical because so much evil is public and so much um, good is private, so much generosity is private. So um, it's, I think it's important to us, especially if we, if we, you know, we have so much input from the news these days, and so much of it uh, tends to point out the public evil. And so for us to have this intention to to be aware of, um, of how much um, private uh, good there is. Um, so we with this practice of generosity, we just have this um, intention of, of becoming more in touch with 
what is freely given and what is freely received. Talked also um, a little bit uh, last week, I think it was, or the week before, about um, this being open to receiving. Um, a lot in our culture, there's sort of this thing like we're very self-sufficient, and so if there's um, somebody um, acts generously towards us, sometimes there's you know, sort of a, a discomfort that arises. And with this um, with this practice, we can have the intention of when um, someone is giving to us that we can um, really open ourselves to that, be really present um, in that moment to, to receive the gift that is being offered. And in that way, we, um, we honor the gift and we honor the, the giver. So I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about gratitude and um, the practice that um, that I've really found to, to be beneficial. I think that um, you know, there are, are various types of personalities, and uh, some people are just more naturally um, aware of, 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 of gratitude, of being you know, grateful for what is um, what they're given, and um, other people uh, tend to have a, a little bit less. Um, awareness and openness to that, and I kind of intended to be one of those on that end of the spectrum. So um, I, I found it really helpful to have a, um, a formal practice of, of gratitude, and um, especially when um, sometimes, you know, when things are, are difficult and you can kind of get spinning into that, um, that state of uh, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves or, um, you know, wanting things to be different, that um, we can, of course, uh, try and turn towards that and open to that. That's part of our mindfulness practice. But if we find that we're just sort of spinning um, in that uh, that place of um, feeling like, uh, sorry for ourselves or feeling like we you know, why here, like we'd like things to be different, then um, we can actually uh, do the practice of bringing things to mind that, that we're grateful for, and that can kind of help to, to grease that uh, avenue of the mind, that inclination of the mind, so that um, it's, um, when we do those kind of practices, then it just um, naturally will occur that the mind will be more likely to turn towards um, towards that kind of um, skillful mind state. So on um, Friday, I, I had a. Um, a <coughs> Circumstance arise that um, illustrates this, and I um, I could really see that another tendency has been like um, 
you know, it's so easy to, as I mentioned, not to be so open to receiving, to kind of feel that, um, that it's a burden. You know, maybe somebody's going to give us a gift. Maybe it's a burden on them. And, um, and we so feel like we uh, are not deserving or whatever. So on, um, on Friday, I was at, at work, and my uh, boss brought me a contract that uh, was needed to be delivered on Monday morning. <coughs> and so I put it in the UPS overnight envelope and put the label on it. And then a little while later, he came out and he said, oh, I forgot. You know, we should actually send two copies so they'll sign one and they'll return one. So that, that's right. We should definitely do that. So I... And he gave me a second copy to, to send because uh, he had to sign it. And so um, I opened up the envelope and then I realized that I started looking. There was no glue in the office and so I couldn't close the envelope. So and I, I think my mind was not functioning too well Friday afternoon. It was kind of like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... Um, it really wasn't functioning very well. So I um, got another envelope and um, put the, the uh, new contract in it. And I ripped the old envelope in half to recycle it and forgetting that I had not taken the other copy of the contract. <laughs> <laughs> and my boss had already left for the day. So then I got, oh man. So I, I had already made a PDF file of it, so I had to make that into a Word document. And then you know, I, I used that as the other one to put in the envelope. And so this is close to the end of day, the day, fortunately. So I start driving, you know, I drive home, and that's like kind of in a crappy mood. I had sort of thought that I had sort of you know, gone with that, and that was just the way things are. But no, I think I was kind of, so I was kind of like, on the way home. So then I, I realized that I could let go of, of the, the bad mood. And I got home and uh, went to get out of my car, and I saw that I had forgotten to drop it off in the UPS file. <laughs> so I walked into the house and my sister was in the kitchen and she said, oh, how was your day? <laughs> so I told him my sad story and I was coming to Common Ground to, uh, to do the Meta group on Friday night and um, I was kind of a little bit crunched for time at that point, although I would have, could have gone over to, to drop it off when I needed to go. But my sister said, oh, I can drop it off for you. I'd be happy to, to drive over and, and deliver it to you. To deliver it for you. And listen to my music or whatever. And it was just, I felt just so supported. I, I was just so touched by that, you know, that act of generosity. I felt you know, just really grateful um, for her, um, her generosity. And so um, I and, and also, I, I think in, in the past, I might have, I might have said, oh, no, 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 I can't. I accept you. It's Friday night for you, too. And, you know, but I, it was really easy 
and I was just really able to um, to accept it. And, and she was fine. She hadn't had such a bad afternoon, <laughs> so she had some some energy to uh, to take care of it. So. Um, So another thing that we can do to um, develop this attitude of um, gratitude is we can um, just have an intention to um, be more aware of of pleasant things in our lives. Just sometimes we can kind of get in this, have this tendency to sort of the... the, um, the things that we need to take care of and the things that are difficult kind of tend to grab our attention more. And so we can just have this intention to um, turn our, our minds more towards noticing all of the pleasant things that um, that arise in our lives and, and to, um, to feel the gratitude that's connected with having that um, awareness of, of what's pleasant. And, you know, it can be you know, really simple things of just, um, you know, when we notice beautiful things in nature or um, sometimes we maybe um, a child will um, will we'll see a child and we'll just kind of give us that feeling of connection and um, of joy and just to, um, just to notice those things um, when they arise. And then, as I mentioned, we can also have just a, maybe have a more formal practice of gratitude where we actually um, set aside a, a time each week or um, each day where we can just sit down for a few minutes and just reflect on the, and you know, maybe even write down the things that um, have occurred in the, uh, that day or in the past week that we feel gratitude for. And... Um, so that can help again to incline the mind towards some these skillful mind states. Santi Carl spoke here a couple of weeks ago. He was um, his talk was on busyness, and it, uh, one of the things that he mentioned during that talk was he said that um, there are two, um, at least a couple of meanings to the word mindfulness or sati in Pali, that there is the um, idea of being aware moment by moment of our experience and being open um, to whatever that is. That's one definition of mindfulness. But there's also a definition of mindfulness that it is remembering. And so it can be really helpful to um, have a time where we um, we can sit down and reflect and um, either as in this practice of gratitude where we can recall things that we're grateful for or we can use it in in many instances um, like for instance maybe if we're um, looking at um, greed and aversion, we can kind of look back um, over the day 
at um, times when we've wanted things or haven't wanted things and um, just kind of reflect on uh, what our reaction to that was and look at um, if that reaction was wholesome or unwholesome. And so in this way, when in our lives, we it, things tend to happen pretty quickly. And so sometimes it's hard in the moment to, um, to bring our, um, this kind of non-judgmental awareness into that moment. But by taking time to, to reflect, we can, um, it kind of primes the mind for the future so that when things arise that we're more likely, the mind is more likely to, um, to turn towards the um, being um, open and then non-judging to whatever is happening if we've uh, kind of primed the pump um, through this process of reflection. So now I'd like to move on to the second parami, which is um, sila, uh, translated as virtue or morality. And in his uh, teachings, the Buddha presented three areas of training that lead to liberation from suffering. And those three um, areas of training are sila, virtue or morality, samadhi, concentration, practice of developing concentration, concentrating the mind, and panya, which is wisdom or insight. And as a result of the practice of um, developing the um, morality and concentration, then insight uh, tends to naturally arise out of um, out of those trainings. This is a quote from um, my first teacher, uh, Shenzhen Yang. Um, it's called The Path. And he says, if anybody asks you what the path is about, it's about generosity, it's about morality, it's about concentration, it's about gaining insight through focused self-observation. It's about cultivation of subjective states of compassion and love based on insight. And it's about translating that compassion and love into actions in the real world. So it, it's good for us to sort of have this sort of framework that we can put the practice into and um, so that we, we know that um, the practice of generosity and the practice of morality, the concentration that we develop through um, meditation and the, um, the insight and wisdom that arises out of that, that then we can naturally take that and um, joining it with the metta practice, cultivating um, compassion, the joining together of the wisdom and the compassion make our actions in the, in the world 
um, much more beneficial than if we um, don't take the time to um, to reflect on um, those possibilities. So sila is really central to um, this tradition that we're practicing. And there are um, five training precepts, or Thich Nhat Hanh calls them mindfulness trainings. And the five are to, um, to refrain from harming. So it's not refrain from killing, but more completely it's refraining from harming, not harming, um, having the intention not to harm other beings. The second um, precept is um, not taking what is not given. Sometimes this is said not stealing, but a more complete way is to think of it as, as not taking what is not given. Um, the third is um, not using, not lying, not using harsh or divisive speech. The fourth is refraining from sexual misconduct. And the fifth is not ingesting intoxicants or things that cloud the mind. So we can, no, it's good for us to remember that these aren't commandments, that um, they're not shoulds like shall not steal, you shall not kill. Um, they're not commandments. Those are things that are imposed on us from the outside. And um, these precepts that we um, undertake to train in are things that, um, that we choose to do because we see a benefit to them. If we don't see a benefit to them, then, um, then we that it's not skillful for us to, uh, to choose to, to do them. But we do know that the human character is not fixed. It's um, definitely changeable, moldable. Um, and we can make choices that, um, that uh, you know, affect the conditions that will arise. And so we can take responsibility for our reactions to things. And then we can, um, we can see how um, we, you know, we can become aware and notice what the effect is when we make those choices. And we can notice what the effect is when we make when we don't make those choices. And then we can um, the, the mind becomes more um, more aware of, of what the, the possibilities are and. Um, tends to incline more to when it's making skillful choices. So a couple of years ago, I was um, at a 10-day retreat with Stephen Com- Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters at the Christine Center. And the center is really lovely. It's way out in the um, rural area. And uh, the grounds are, are very beautiful. And it's quite remote. Um, the first time that I went there, I was driving down the road and towards the center, and the, 
a deer ran across in front of me. Quite beautiful. And I drove along a little further, and a large turtle line was crossing the road. And uh, a little bit further, I drove along, and a black bear ran across. (laughs) 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 Whoa! (laughs) Really going into the (laughs) into the countryside here. (laughs) So um, the the bears don't come to the center, but the deer do. And uh, it's really quite lovely. They'll come right up by the meditation hall, and uh, they graze and see them at the window, especially in the evening. And sometimes they have their fawns with birds. It's really quite sweet. So I, I woke up on the last um, morning of the retreat, and I remembered this dream that I had had. And um, in the dream, I was walking uh, down the path, and um, I came across a life of the deer. And so I thought, felt some fear and thought, well, you know, perhaps I better go back to the, you know, turn back. But I thought, well, it's okay, I'll walk on a little further. So I walked on a little further. I think that were lying on the path. And I, I thought, ooh, you know, something here that could be kind of dangerous. But I thought, well, maybe I need to, to find out, to find out what it is. Because if it's dangerous to me, it could be dangerous to other people as well. And so, so I walked on, and sure enough, I came a little bit further down the road, and there was a lion. And um, then it was like, well, that is dangerous. <laughs> person a dream you don't find it too surprising to find a lion in rural Wisconsin. <laughs> so, um, so I um, boldly took the lion by its fur and, and uh, I knew that there was a cage that was back up the path and so I kind of guided the lion up the, the path and um, when I, as I got it was pretty trainable at first, but as I got but closer, it started nipping at my hand. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, this is pretty unpleasant. <laughs> but after all, I've been on a 10 day retreat, so <laughs> I don't think I thought that in the dream, but. So I, I did, I got the lion into, into the cage and um, you know, felt like um, things, but there was some safety that had been restored to the area. So and I just like that metaphor as the, um, that, you know, the, when, when the mind uh, faces something that's dangerous and um, is willing to be with it. Um, then the mind can come to a place of, um, of safety by facing that, whatever, that, um, the, if it's fear or anger or whatever um, emotions arise, that the, the mind is, uh, as the Buddha has clearly said, is, is trainable. The, the Buddha taught that there are 
um, three types of people in the world, and he called them uninstructed worldlings, the trainee, and the arahant, or the fully enlightened being. And he said that the uninstructed worldling um, is uh, is not able, has not even not heard the the uh, possibility of the mind being trained, or has heard it and hasn't been able to absorb that that teaching, and so they are just um, at the mercy of the conditions of the world and at the mercy of um, of suffering from whatever arises in their life and not uh, having a lot of control over uh, working with those conditions, just not understanding the possibility of it. And um, the Arhant, or the fully enlightened being, um, is does not need these training precepts any longer because they these impulses no longer arise in them. They have purified their consciousness to the extent where um, the um, harmful mind states no longer arise in them. So, the but the trainee has heard um, about these uh, the trainings in um, sila, samadhi, and panya, virtue concentration and, and insight and they um, have chosen to take some responsibility for working with these um, with these trainings and um, so that's um, that's what we were doing this evening when we sat in meditation um, when we you know, just sitting in, in meditation for this period of short period of time um, we are really practicing uh, the precepts because um, we, you know, we sit quietly, pretty much not harming um, anything. Um, maybe ourselves a little bit, depending on what our mind is doing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we have an intention to, um, to to not be harming ourselves either. And um, yeah, there, there might be some we're not taking anything. Um, we're not um, doing any um, sexual misconduct or we're not using uh, harsh speech. Um, we're refraining from taking intoxicants. So um, just sitting quietly and, um, and practicing the development of concentration where we are practicing the, the training precepts. So we can feel good about that, you know, the, the benefit of our um, choosing to do that. These are also precepts that are um, taken at, re- at retreats, so that um, uh, the retreatants agree to, um, for the period of the retreat, to uh, to abide by to the very best of their ability uh, to these precepts, and so that really makes the 
um, container of the retreat a very safe place for people to practice. And, and it's often commented, I've heard many comments after retreats of how people felt this, you know, just the, the safety of this, even though, you know, they were sitting with the 40 other people, 50 other people who we really don't know, there's still this, um, this real, real feeling of, um, of safety, this communal intention to not harm. And, and it's, a, it's a very powerful and potent um, feeling. Take a minute to read from just a little excerpt from a book that was written by Ajahn Amaro. He's a um, Western uh, Western monk, uh, a Westerner who became a monk, and uh, he lives in California. And he wrote a book called Small Bold Great Mountain. <coughs> And this is part is called The Search for Freedom. So it's probably like many people, I wrestled at length with the question of freedom in my teens and early 20s. I was a late flower child, having been born in 1956. I just caught the tail end of the good stuff. Through much of my early years, I worshipped the ideal of freedom and longed for the true experience of it. Rather than becoming a bomb-throwing anarchist, though, I became more of a flower-waving, philosophical anarchist. Nevertheless, I took this aspiration to freedom very seriously, and I had a profound intuition that freedom is possible, that there is this potential we have as human beings to be totally free, and that there is something utterly pure, uninhibited, and uninhibitable within us. My experience, however, was one of colliding with endless restrictions and frustrations. First it was getting away from my parents, then it was the law, then it was not having enough money. I thought that this or that was standing in my way, and if only it wasn't there, I would be free. I was completely bewildered. No matter how much I tried to be free and unhindered by conventions, forms, and structures, mostly by defying these things, there always seemed to be another layer and another layer and another layer. I kept meeting up with limitations, and as a result, I was constantly feeling frustrated. I was suffering, and I had no idea why. I left England and began my travels in hopes of finding freedom somewhere else. I went to Southeast Asia and pursued a Dionysian lifestyle of eat, drink, be merry, sex, drugs, rock and roll, dancing in the moonlight, on the beaches with one hand waving free. But inside me was a feeling that I was coming to a desperate crunch. I knew intuitively that this decadent path really was not leading to freedom. So I searched some more. I took off to the northeast of Thailand, where hardly any western tourists ever went, and found myself wandering into a forest monastery. It was the branch of Ajahn Chah's monastery, where his western monks lived. It's important to know that the Thai forest tradition is the stiff end of an already narrow orthodoxy. It's the strict observance of an already conservative tradition. What was immediately apparent to me, however, was that these people were living the most bizarrely austere life, yet they were also the most cheerful characters I'd ever met. 
They were getting up at three in the morning, eating one meal a day, drinking a cup of tea twice a week, sleeping on thin grass mats, having no sex, definitely no sex, no drugs, alcohol, or rock and roll. Yet they were fully at ease, very friendly and uncomplicated people. I asked myself, what have they got to laugh about? How come they're so happy when their lifestyles are so restricted? Then I met Ajahn Chah, the teacher. If I thought the monks seemed pretty content with their lot, meeting him was even more striking. Ajahn Chah appeared to be the happiest man in the world. He had been living as a monk in the forest without any sex, music, or drink for 40 years. You would imagine someone would be pretty dried up by then. But here was a man who was totally at ease with life. In fact, he was thoroughly enjoying it, totally content. So, well, Ajahn Chah um, has this quote that says, um, if um, you let go a little, you will um, find a little happiness or contentment. If you let go a lot, you'll find a lot of happiness or contentment. And if you let go completely, you will find complete happiness and contentment. So, um, um, we, um, as lay people, as householders, um, we just start where we are. But I think it's really, it's, for me, it's really inspiring to, um, to read about um, you know, monks like Ajahn Chah and uh, to read things um, by Ajahn Amaro or Ajahn Sumedho or other um, people who have um, practiced really deeply and to know that, um, that that's a possibility for all human beings. And uh, so I think that's just... Uh, to have that not as a way to um, feel frustrated or discontent with our own lives, but just to um, to see um, how by putting these um, training precepts into um, practice, you know, to the best of our ability, that um, just to, to see what effect that has in terms of. Um, of how our lives unfold. So we have a few minutes now. If um, people have questions or would like to share any thoughts on either uh, successes or struggles with um, gratitude or the training precepts to hear from people.
you know, for some reason if it's consensual, it's okay. And what I thought about was people in life sometimes um, say okay to something really, it's not really okay, but it's kind of a compromise or, you know, I think sometimes we do that with food too. We, we eat when we're not hungry and we say yes to things we don't really want to keep the peace and things like that. And I just wanted to bring that piece up that really, you know, to look at these actions and stuff in, in terms of non-harming takes it to a whole other level, I think. And to really not harm ourselves or others, we have to be more careful what we say yes to, you know, when, maybe when we should say no. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, if, if we have, you know, if we, if we've reflected in that way, then we have more of a likelihood that um, when a situation comes up, that, you know, that we'll, we'll choose a, a wholesome action. And, and that's really what, you know, the practice of these precepts is, is about, is, um, not, you know, I mean, uh, we've all made mistakes and we're all going to make some more. But, um, and so then when that happens, we can use that practice of reflection. And um, then, but, but to um, just thought of a, um, the Buddhist instructions to his son, his son Rahula became a monk. Um, at one point, and he was giving him some instructions, and he told him to um, that um, to reflect before he did an action, to reflect during the action, and to reflect after the action. And um, so, kind of put that in the back of our minds too, as something that we can. Uh, we can reflect on ourselves. Uh, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Mona. Uh, I, I noticed that when uh, Gail was mentioning the five precepts and uh, abstaining from sexual misconduct and abstaining from intoxicants, how I felt, given that you know there's some people here tonight, I've been around for a while, and I'm thinking, you know, what are they thinking about that? No sex and drugs, no rock and roll. And um, I just noticed, given my own conditioning, you know, I, I, I still really, in, at least in my mind, really, uh, you know, think, you know, I don't want to give those things up. And um, but you know, upon reflection, and I think that's a really good example with, uh, you know, maybe we're referring to sex, but having sex when you kind of feel like it's just not the right thing to do. Some people describe, I think, maybe take not harm in terms of uh, what is appropriate or non-harming sex would be only within the context of a um, long-term relationship. But uh, I just kind of noticing those two parts of me, one that says, oh, I don't want to get those things up. And, and then another part of me is just really seeing how I really suffer around things as I reflect um, things the way I think sometimes with intoxicants and drugs. and. Um, uh, just doing things that are they're really harmful, and so and I've noticed how it troubles my mind 
reflecting on things. And when I'm sitting, it's like, oh, those things do hurt. So I just kind of appreciate you broaching that. And thanks, yeah, too. That's what I didn't really, I'm sure Mark will be talking, I think he'll be continuing on with this topic and he'll be going much more into depth and with each of the different precepts. But um, yeah, it, it says for, for Theravada monks, it, they do um, choose to be celibate, but that's not what um, the householders are. Um, that's not the precept that householders practice. It, it is, but it is, I mean, the sexual misconduct is things like um, breaking our commitments in relationships um, or um, other harmful things but in, in, within a, a and, and the encouragement is definitely um, for it to be in a committed relationship. But the other thing is we can practice, you know, we don't have to, we can choose any of these precepts to practice. We don't have to practice all of them at the same time or, you know, it's just a thing that we can start to investigate. So wherever we're at, you know, we can choose something and uh, explore that. I was just got back yesterday, last night, from Costa Rica, where I went with eight other students from my high school, kind of as an end-of-year trip, along with our teacher. And one of the things I noticed that's related to what you're talking about is the joy of generosity. And really, more surprising, the most surprising is the joy part of it. Um, just seeing over and over, that it actually feels really good when we're living together like that, um, of the responsibility of taking care of each other. And that it wasn't a burden at all, but actually a joy to be able to have something that you can give to others. Um, and just, um, and feeling, in, you know, and it's related to that switching of uh, the view in the mind from one of just self-centeredness and looking up for oneself of one that includes more people, um, one that includes everyone, so that, and, it, and just that switch, just seen over and over on that trip and in other parts of my life, that that switch really makes all the difference and it just feels a lot better and more correct and more in tune with with how it is to, to come out of that natural generosity. Someone um, shared uh, one night that the, um, I forget if it was in Burma or Thailand, there's this real attitude that um, someone, that someone receiving your gift um, is like the, um, you know, there's, you have a very deep gratitude for um, yeah. when, when your gift is received. And, I think 
just some simple gratitudes today. I was walking home from the dog park, which is always the happy thing with the dogs running. And then I was walking to Matthew's Park, and I was noticing that I was walking there. I was in less pain than the day before, so I was grateful for that. And the uh, water collie was leaving the park with its ball thing, so it was really happy. Park and run and play, and very grateful for the rain that earth was just And then I, I saw these men climb right into the park, and it's right after I was aware of less pain um, in my leg, and, and I noticed that um, one of the men had a artificial leg, and I was just so Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.